Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers Story Show. And today on Storymakers. Today on Storymakers, we are going to talk about from ow to now, the politics and shape of story. Hmm. And ow to now is one of your little sayings. My little catchphrases. Yeah. I feel like. But first. Um, what are you working on? <laughs> So one of the things I have to say I'm working on is like waiting and not having something good to be doing while I'm waiting. So I'm really, really, you know, I, I don't know. I'm wishing I had something better to do, but, um, I, so house cleaning. Yeah. And like morning pages, but kind of like half-assed morning pages and, you know, newsletters, daily dose, like I'm writing stuff, but I wish I was writing something new and exciting. So why aren't you? Well, because I don't quite know what it is yet. I don't know, because I'm just a little stuck. Which is not like me. No, it it isn't like me. It's not like me. And I think it it won't be like me pretty soon once, you know, Mm -hmm. once I'm moving forward with the next thing. But um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm I'm also, I'm excited about the Blackout the Bestseller list. Blackout, hashtag Blackout Bestseller list. So we will talk about that a little later in the podcast. I thought we were going to start with that. Oh, we're going to start with it. Great. Okay. So there's this kind of movement going on. um, And um, you may have noticed it. (laughs) Well, I don't mean the Black Lives (laughs) Matter movement. I mean, okay, there's like a sub genre uh, that's, you know, hashtag there's an action within the movement yeah. to help get the bestseller lists around the country for novels to better represent. Or just and in all fact, books. the real goal is to get all of the list to be black authors. Black authors. And now we're a little bit confused about the logistics of the list and how this works. But if worst case scenario, everybody's okay. The the plan. Let me start here. The plan is everybody go out and buy at least two books by black authors this week in your local independent bookstore, ideally. Mm-hmm. But buy them new, buy them now. That's number one. That's really the instruction. Right now. And here's just to say, like whether or not the action of filling bestseller lists with African American authors actually like succeeds because there's some complications Which to we'll the process. As you pointed out earlier, any time you make an investment, this is voting with your dollar really yeah. about what matters. And so you're allowing people who don't always get the best support in marketing and marketing and that stuff to show up as big sellers. So when later they are looking to sell that next book, they're publishers will look and see how did they sell before and tr- and and also i mean this has been a whole explosive big week around um people exposing what they what they got paid mm-hmm. and so white authors and black authors and other authors expose you know like just being up front with like here's what i got paid and some of the numbers are really shocking like shockingly low for jessamine ward kiesa mm-hmm. limon like people who are really like the most brilliant authors of our moment and who are award-winning and who are selling well even, getting paid so much less than some other folks um, who maybe aren't even selling out their advances and things. I mean... And it's not just some other folks. It's yeah, some other clear white, white folks. folks. Yeah. So that's been exposed in... Um, 
you know, and it's interesting because it's like, we don't talk about like, how much did you get paid? Unless something's really big and that kind of goes out as part of the buzz, you know, mm-hmm. and there's all right. these little terms that mean, you know, this is a good deal. This was a nice deal. This was a very nice deal. There are all these little terms that kind of mean certain amounts this of money. It's a pleasant deal. <laughs> They're like ranges of money. So it's actually really important in a capitalist system anyway, in a, in a business, which publishing is, to mm. to have these products be bought and and again you know and if they're not bought through your independent bookstore your independent bookstore isn't going to be there so right. there's all of that and and secondarily to say that the argument that Hollywood went through about the um, the ability of an African American lead or a female lead to carry a you know a billion dollar film you can't say that that won't work anymore because we've got great demonstrations so. If you follow through, and we really, really encourage you, even if you are hearing this two years from now and you're like, whoa, I didn't do that, do it now. Yeah. I'll tell you what else. I mean, let's just fess up. Like, like this is kind of the most win-win action imaginable, right? Like, oh, I have to go buy books. Poor us, right? right? <laughs> it's like, no wonder I'm all excited. You know, I get to, I get to feel righteous and buy books at the same time. Which, let's be honest as well, if we're going to fess up, which is that um, we kind of feel that way buying books anyway. Like, righteous? Yeah. It's, what is true is our bookstore, our local independent Copperfields in Sebastopol, was the last place we went to before the shutdown. It was like, oh, let's go buy books. And the first place we went to on our way back in where they're only letting five people in at a time in, in masks. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about how the bestseller list works just for a moment here, because I actually... You can educate me on this, because actually... Well, I had a friend who um, had had a huge, a couple of huge bestsellers. I won't say her name. And she wanted her the book that was coming out. I'll just say it's not Ellen, because I talk about her all the time, and she's a New York Times bestselling author. But anyway, um, she wanted her a book to be a bestseller. And, and so like I remember I bought like three copies of it. It was this big thing. And there was this whole idea that if you get to like 3,000 in a week, it'll become a bestseller. But it happened that a bunch of like people who immediately sell at least 3,000 books came out the same week. And so even though she actually passed 3,000, she didn't end up on the bestseller list. Mm. But so the bestseller list is literally like the numbers of books that sell in a very short, you know, w- window, initial window. I mean, then it keeps going, obviously, but um, from a certain set of sources, right? So wh- those that are counting books. So sales. Amazon has its own bestseller list uh, and my self-published um, <laughs> chat book on Bandit and <laughs> You're grief, making this up. The Grief of Asphalt um, <laughs> will be not included as one of the sources available for the New York Times bestseller list, or is it? I don't really know where Amazon exactly fits in, although, you know, there's a lot of enmity between Amazon and, and traditional publishers and bookstores <laughs> and everybody that they're kind of taking down. But... Um, but in any case, I do not know everything about this. But what I do know is that, and then they also, you know, there are certain kinds. If you if you just went out and bought three thousand of your own book, like they would track that it was all one purchase, or you know, there's ways that they they discount certain things. But in any case, so one of the problems with this movement, and as you pointed out, it's not a very large problem in terms of like it's just sales for black authors is going to mean 
more African-American authors hopefully getting better advances and getting more recognition and people taking more publishing risks and blah, blah, blah. But if we really want to black out the bestseller list, um, then it, it would help to sort of throw our weight collectively behind specific titles, right? Because exactly. otherwise we're, we're dispersing our weight. So mm-hmm. I wanted to mention two titles okay. on that front. Um, and I, I want to say, though, there are incredible lists going out right now of books to buy. And, um, and there's just, you know, it's just an opportunity to read amazing books. And so mm-hmm. one, of, one of my recommendations is one of my favorite books, and it's Girl, Woman, Other by Bernardine Evaristo. And it won the Man Booker Prize shared with Margaret Atwood. Okay. And um and it's actually very queer although she thanks her husband so I mean what whatever make whatever you will of that but it's and it's it's just great. It's a great book. Oh and the other thing is it's in like sort of blank verse. I I may be misspeaking but it's like it's not super it's not rhymey or anything but it's it's like lines and they're not capitalized. There's no not really punctuation but it's very readable nonetheless. And um, it, it's and it's very multiple point of view, and it, but they it ends up like tying together and building to this like amazing ending, I thought. Um, so anyway, great book. It's number one on the UK bestseller list right now. Okay. And um, and we watched a little interview with Bernardine Evaristo and talking about you know it was on the bestseller list for about twenty weeks, mm-hmm. but um, but she did attribute the it's reaching number one for to the Black Lives Matter movement, and turns out. First um, African-British author to reach number one Mm. on that bestseller list, shockingly, right? It does make you kind of question the system. Well, really? Or just, I mean, or... Um, That was was very dry (laughs) Dry, humor. You have a very dry humor. Very dry. The other book I haven't read, but the book that's number one on the New York Times bestseller list right now is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, um, which is about the lives of twin sisters who run away from a Southern Black community at age 16 and their lives diverge as one, I'm reading from the bestseller Mm -hmm. list, one returns and the other takes on a different racial identity, but their fates intertwine. And I have not read that, nor have I read her her previous very successful book. Um, but that sounds really good. So I think what I might do is buy that book and then one that might be less like imminently about to land on the bestseller list because this one's already on there. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe one in between, right, that we could like push on mm-hmm. there. So um, again, I guess this, very you know, the other question this. would be, um, who are great resources for the kinds of curated lists you're talking about? So I know Roxanne Gay was the person who you kind of heard about this from. I actually heard about it from, from Brandon Taylor, whose book Real okay. Life is just out okay. this year, and I'm reading it. And it's he's a wonderful writer, so that's another great one to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's who I happened to see it on um, Twitter from. And Roxanne Gay said, I didn't instigate this. I'm just promoting it. No, no, I know. But I think that one of the things that's probably true is there are going to be a lot of people who are doing incredible work mm-hmm. that we could maybe collect some links for our listeners mm-hmm. so that they could visit our website and get a list of... Yeah, so I'll put a few I'll put a few curated lists in the show notes for this show. Right. So you can look at some recommendations from folks. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I was sort of, yeah, I was having a fantasy of coming up with my own because there are a bunch of books. Well, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, another problem, prob- I mean, I think like, like Colson Whitehead has been enormously successful. I think what part of the problem is this, this sort of comes and goes, you know what I mean? Like, the, like you're on the bestseller list for your week or month or year and then, you know, and then, or three years, but, you know, eventually you're going to fall off it. But we both love the Nickel Boys. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Um Jacqueline Woodson is a wonderful writer and um, queer African-American writer. So she would be great to buy books by. She has kids books too, like Brown Girl Dreaming. Um, so And know. multiple time uh, guest on our show. Aya De, De Leon. Leon. Yes. I mean, just for like great, fun, like political escapist, if you know, if there is such a thing, reading, right? Just adventure. Well, you know, it takes me back to, you know, that whole idea of you have to be able to imagine these things in order for them to kind of come true. You know, mm-hmm. you have to be able to conceive of a world that looks different enough from this one to be sort of meaningful. And I, mm-hmm. um, so I think political is always going to have a certain level of that aspirational piece, right? And then the, the aspirational wish heist. fulfillment, right? The it's it's as- not quite wish fulfillment because it's like heisty and, but it's, yeah, it's adventure, right? It's anyway, it's good. Wish fulfillment and heist are the same. <laughs> <That's> the same. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. So we'll put links to all of those and we'll put links to some other like lists. And um, anyway, I just think this is, this is a really fun opportunity. Mm-hmm. So there's that. So let's talk briefly now um, about, oh, what you're working on. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'll wrap it up with steal this. Okay. I'll talk about it at that point. <laughs> what you're working on? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because right now we're going to talk about, um, we um, had this interesting experience. We shifted around some of our book in a year things. Um, like the content and the order. Well, of the it. order of the content. And this is, you know, such a lesson about structure. Just to say. <laughs> the structure of the class and so the structure of books. We used to teach it so we'd have our sort of seven-step process and we'd start with the beginning and, you know, go through each of the steps and end at the end. Mm-hmm. And um, I always kind of got the sense that people didn't really kind of get the connective tissue between the beginning of a story and the end of a story. So The other um, thing is because we meet once a month – to go f- to have like the first lesson focus on the ordinary world that begins the story, and then the next lesson be the inciting incident was not far enough for them to travel in their first month if they were right. going to finish the whole. So this book was in a definitely year. like a combo plate decision that we made, which was about our calendar as much as it was about pedagogical insight. Yeah. So we met with our Sunday morning group yesterday, and. We actually got to see the fruit of that change, how it impacted people's understanding of how the beginning and the end reflect. Speak to each other. Mm-hmm. So we asked them to, to either look at sort of bullet points about the beginning and then a scene from the end or bullet points about – or a scene from the beginning and then bullet points about the end. But we were really looking at what has changed. Right. And sort of uh, with a focus to the character's world at the beginning. So the character's world isn't working in the beginning, and the due end to a, the character's due limiting to belief. The character's limiting belief. So at the end, they have a different way of thinking, or they don't. But the world around them is going to reflect back success or failure, you know, or some sort of larger statement about the world. 
but the character themselves is off are often seen in a different way. So you might have an action where someone who's on the verge of a divorce at the beginning and in a constant state of arguing now has a tentative coffee date with their somewhat estranged wife, right? It doesn't mean it's guaranteed and it's huge, but they're making a different choice, right? And they're demonstrating that new way of being. Not only are they making a different choice, which is usually what we look for in the final battle, but the people around them are reacting to them differently, right? Mm -hmm. Because they have changed. If people aren't reacting to them differently, it's usually because they have failed to change. Mm -hmm. So it was really interesting to bring those two ideas together. And we actually had one student was like, oh, I wish we'd done this sooner. And it was sort of interesting because I don't know that we could have. Well, it's, it, so it's interesting to think about the end of course and end of book revelations mm -hmm. and whether you, you know, whether you can set them up in the ordinary, you know, you can't really demonstrate them in the ordinary world. Right. And I also think, you know, over the course of a project, you are getting increasingly intimate with your characters. You're understanding things. Even though in our class, we do a lot of focus on structure, structures is the character as well, right? So you learned a lot more about your characters and what you as a person want to say by the end of the book. So having the exercise of really directly comparing them, what doesn't work for this character because of what they think at the beginning, and how does that change at the end? But let's imagine it right now, especially because I'm sort of like, okay, what, what am I? What do I want to work on now that's not revising? Um, one of my myriad projects I could revise. So. Let's think, imagine it as a what if sort of exercise, like a brainstorming exercise early on. We have a whiteboard right here. And you could also do this at any stage for sure. Like that's what's great about these story development classes is that they help you at any and every stage from brainstorming to refining. But let's say you're, you're kind of where I am. It's like, okay, what, what's, a, what's a story? What's a character? Where do you want them to start off? What's, what's their limiting belief? How is that impacting their life? What do you want to show at the end? How do you want to see them changed? I mean, it could be interesting to sort of set up those bookends. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, it's going to be one of those things where for some people they feel like, I'm dead inside if I, if I know all of that and I have to write my way from A to B, I mean A to Z. And then at the same time, <laughs> that person's going to be kind of SOL when they have like 101 additional drafts to go through once they've done their wild well, and free draft. Well, but I think it ultimately gets back to the idea of having something to say. And I do think that I like to use all of the stuff we use as tools for revision as ways to brainstorm. So the truth is you could pretty quickly rule out some ideas, not because they're bad, but because they don't give you that jolt of recognition when you pair those two parts of the book together it also i feel like it could yeah so if there's that if you're kind of a little thrilled by one one set of bookends or a, you know a, a series of, of anyway a set um then also you might be like but how the hell can i make mm -hmm. this person become that person right like how can i take somebody who is miserable with her black and white farm life uh, you know, and her evil neighbors and the boring da da da, and make her like feel so grateful to be there and so right. loved and so right. How can I do that? Like, what would have to happen to her? You know, there in the middle of Kansas to make that happen. 
And then who the heck knows what you might come up with? <laughs> yes. Okay, here's another fun thing. Okay, fun right. fact. And then I'll ask you a question. But like coming up with s- stealing, you know, some that kind of the beginning and end of an arc, mm-hmm. but like using creating a completely different middle. You know, I mean, not like so literally. An example. Give me an example. So like go, okay, here's, um, here's a book that I love. You know, mm-hmm. what's a book that I love? And... Um, and then, um, and then looking at like, okay, what's the ordinary world for that book? What's the new ordinary world? What's the character's limiting belief? What's completely changed, you know, and how, and, and like maybe how the, how's that demonstrated or whatever. And then, okay, in that book, the person gets from A to B this way. So, well, like what I was just doing. So I was like doing the Wizard of Oz, right? But in it's case like, you didn't in know. case you didn't know. But what if I were going to take like a farm girl in Kansas and maybe make it now and make her feel isolated and alone. You know, maybe she's queer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and only her dog understands her. <laughs> and then, and like that evil witch lady neighbor, right? Like, I mean, very, like to me, like sort of intriguing. Like what can we do with her? Mm-hmm. That, that, that she's, she, like I think she's she would be maybe a hidden ally antagonist, right? Like Wasn't she, that actress supposed to be a lesbian in real life? Well, she was a witch, so probably she was cast that way in history. But, but you know, so anyway, and then at the end, my character is going to feel seen, feel loved, recognize this, her role in this place and the specialness of this place. But she's not going to get caught up in a um, tornado. tornado and she's not going to go to Oz and she's not, that is not what's going to happen. So then mm-hmm. I get to invent my own yellow brick road. And that's like, a fun challenge, and I would just want to make sure that the the content that that that, that frame creates mm-hmm. is something you're really interested in, right? Because if you are not necessarily interested in rural queers, it may not be <laughs> the best project to take on. But then also, you might not want to move up north from the city. But you might also, um. Pick a different location, right? Mm. So you might say, okay, so I, you know, it doesn't have to be in the Midwest. It can still be, you know, the function of that format is like, oh, I have an outcast. And that person who feels different and doesn't belong and doesn't feel seen. And by the end of the book, no matter where they take place, but you can start playing with it. Like, what if it's a fishing village in Norway? What if it's, you know what I mean? Like these just, I'm just right, saying right, like. Right. Or, you know, Northern California. Or a fishing village in Northern <laughs> California where Dykeman's Deli, uh, right next to the boat launch. Yes. Go. So. Um, so, so um, what, uh, what do you think you might sort of do with this new insight into that arc about and now and, and how? Well, it's a for me it was a revelation for how other people could better comprehend something I was trying to say a lot, but obviously was sort of unsuccessful in in, in getting to. But again, um, I think they maybe they had to go through their low point in their final battle in order mm-hmm. to get to that new ordinary world where they were like, This completely makes sense. Why didn't you just tell me the ruby slippers could send me back home? Yeah, and, and I just I what I do think is true. Well, there's that, but I what I do think is true is that I think a lot of teachers say the same thing, but the metaphors are sort of different based on who they are as people. And so 
I think the people who respond to particular teachers are actually responding to metaphors. I was just um, looking at Scott Young, who I've talked about before in ultra learning, and he's and one of the things he talks about to speed up your own comprehension is like, how able are you to take an idea, compress it enough into a metaphor that is close enough that you can hang on to it? And then as you get deeper in, you will adjust to the metaphor or the metaphor will still be there, but you will still have a sense of the ways in which the metaphor is incomplete. Okay. And so you're, you're taking an idea that you want to really understand and you're creating a metaphor to help you understand it. Right. It reminds me of the memory palace trick, right? Yes. Where you create, you, 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 you take, pick an environment very familiar to you and then you put the ideas in the different rooms so that in the right order. Well, you- yeah. So you put like particular images and, and, and it is creating a metaphor because your brain hangs onto it that way. But also you're more likely to hang on to things that have a relationship to something you already know. So you're more likely, you know, if, um, if I say this, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, trying to think of some idea, but this idea is a bridge between mm-hmm. this one thing and this very different other thing. Um, you might be like, oh, okay. Like I know what a bridge is and what I'm talking about is really so not a bridge, but the metaphor that that says there is a relationship that carries you safely between these very different things is something you can understand and attach both of those things to. So then you can sort of move forward. Yeah. And so I think what this allowed me to do was give people access to a metaphor that was much clearer. Because which we was were, what? Which was that about the mirror. Like having a mirror from the beginning. So here's who they were at the beginning and sort of their reflection at the end. Or you know what I mean? So I don't I'm not sure that was great. But putting but them in together. Because a mirror is interesting yeah. because it's it seems like it's the same image, but it's actually flipped. Yes. Right? Yeah. That's deep. Yeah. I, I like it. And what it makes me think is um there's this other piece which might be just a whole different episode where you can understand something structurally and then you can get attached to the way you've created it. Mm. And how do you toggle between sort of what you've done and what you could do with the deeper understanding of structural possibilities? Right. But I think that's a different episode. I do. Let's do that soon though. Yes. (laughs) So um, maybe explain limiting belief before we move well, on to steal this that to well yeah, actually limiting belief is from one context which i i learned about the idea of limiting belief from tony robbins which was like oh, what is hilarious what is this underlying perspective that you have that really shapes your behavior so if you are someone who has a limiting belief that you must never look like you make a mistake if your limiting belief is making a mistake is life-threatening you are going to have some real clear set of behaviors when put into a situation. So I actually, and so he talks about that in a sort of a self-helpy way, like overcoming your limiting beliefs. But then I did all that work on screenwriting and there was always this idea of a character flaw. And what I didn't like about character flaws, it always was something like, well, they're greedy. And mm. to me, that just didn't really, like, I felt like greedy was an action mm. and that, that a belief sits at the core of everything for a character, for, for us as people. We respond to the world. We even 
conjure the world based on what we believe. And in some ways, it's more interesting to say, you know, their limiting belief is if I don't hold on to everything, I won't be safe as opposed to uh, I'm greedy. (laughs) And greedy dehumanizes. Yeah. So, and it makes you less, even if you're a bad, you know, the antagonist, I think that um, have that's when you get into character because yeah. you don't really understand. You can write all the backstory you want, right? You can write all of those great you know, character bios and this person that had this terrible thing happen and that's why the way they are. But that doesn't really tell you how they interpreted what happened to them mm-hmm. and why. And so then, you know, one of the things I think we find really satisfying in story, even though it's not true to life 100%, is when we kind of go back and get why someone who has been so opaque is the way they are. Mm. You don't think it's true to life? I don't think so because people are a little more complicated than just characters. I mean, I love characters and they're not caricatures, right? We want full complex characters, but a complex character on a page is never going to be as complex as a human. Right. And in fact, that's one of the challenging things about memoirs. You have to pick the parts of you that become the character. Exactly. And not the whole thing. So, well, anyway, we are at some point going to be offering a free class from Angie, a free talk about story development um, before we head into our next book in a year class. So look for that this summer. We will mm-hmm. definitely announce it. Um, go buy some books. It's time for. And it is time for Steal This. <laughs> Amateur poets borrow. Professional poets steal. What have you come across? In your wanderings and readings, in your marching and mask wearing. <laughs> this week. That you want to take and make your own. All right. Well, I just actually, I was reading a review by James Wood in The New Yorker um, of Mega Majumdar's A Burning, which is a new novel. And, um, and he just had a couple of lines uh, in the review that I thought were very concise. It wasn't that they were actually something I didn't know, but I so appreciate, and they're actually about kind of plot so mm-hmm. um, and, and writing. So I just really appreciated them as like a very concise way. Are you going to share them right now? Yeah. No, I'm just going to talk about them. Hard to tell. <laughs> he says, plot is essentially about desire and obstruction and the question of whether that obstruction is removed or solidified. Great. So I loved that. And the other one was, um, he says, the book's surface realism, that great boon to writers, is abundant and busy and life-sown. And then lists a bunch of things. Murray Wallace, pillow fillers, guava sellers, a man who grinds tobacco in his palm, not to mention theatrical agents, school teachers, hijras, criminals, and criminal politicians. So just he just makes this list and actually lists are another wonderful thing. But... This idea that surface realism is a great boon to writers is something that is actually very important to me. It's not not the language I would have used, but the fact of the power that the details of place... Verisimilitude. Well, the, the power that the details of place have to bring meaning and emotion out and in, into a story um, is, is so significant to me. Well, this is what we were talking about last week, though, with, with uh, parody and satire. And the surface, uh, 
what were the words he used? He says uh, the book's surface realism, that great boon to writers. So surface realism, right, is just like, yeah, he can't really comprehend everything at a go. So here are the four things that are going to give you the entire world. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be so resonant, mm-hmm. right? And I love the idea of those things being abundant and busy and life-sown, S-O-W-N, right? So yes. I just want to, I want to, that makes me want to go write. It makes me want to write something um, with a, a surface realism that is abundant, busy, and life-sown. Okay, good. Yeah. How about you? Honestly, I'm, I have been so... You were going to come back to what you've been working on right now. I know. And I've been so head down on non-creative stuff this past week. It's a little hard to kind of lift my head and say, yes, this thing. Well, you know, that's so fair. Like, And I think one thing that might be actually really helpful to our listeners is for you to answer the question, how have you, or how might you, or how will you, you pick, um, reconnect to your creativity when you get to do that? Well, I think it's, here's the thing. There's, there are real obligations and they seem to right now just keep piling up. They were supposed to end (laughs) last week. Well, we also, we extended our deadline tax wise. Right. But that's not the only thing I'm working on. Right. So Mm -hmm. there's just, it just feels like the things that I need to do, I need to I don't know. I don't, yeah. I'm actually feel very stressed out. <laughs> Does that help our listeners? <laughs> you know, I want to say this cause this is a real like quarantine wherever, whatever state we're in moment, which is one of the things that I was doing so well when the kids were in like virtual school, even though it was so half masked. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. a good version of what I want, really want to say about it. Um, is that so? We had something of a schedule, and so I would get up early before everybody, and then you know we had a plan where I had until mid morning, and then I took over. And when I was protecting that time, those few hours, it was so powerful. And one of the things that's going awry right now is that I am not protecting that time. I'm getting up and I'm thinking, oh, I need to use my morning energy, which is my best energy, to clean the house and to blast through like logistical work stuff and to get all that stuff done. And, um, and that's just, that's not what works best for our life because, you know, our life works best if we can find some way to seed in some small amount of creative work and then do everything else after hours. Or yours. Well, I think yours too, though. I think, and I think one of the things that's happening is when I'm up early, like when you get up to get have coffee, and I'm up buzzing with logistical stuff to be done, that does not give you the headspace. No, it really doesn't. To shift out into that. Whereas if I'm coming at noon, like okay, time to time to get that stuff done, that's a better timing. Look, welcome to our therapy. <laughs> so, if you have any questions about how we can create therapy in your relationship. <laughs> Drop us a line at questions <laughs> at storymakershow.com. 